Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Interesting email from someone who said, hey, Carol, I'm missing your shows that just talked about sex addiction without the couple thing. I'm single. And what I want more than anything is to stay in recovery, but it seems like everybody is talking about how to deal with the partner. I have not been with anybody for 18 years, in terms of a relationship, that is. Please start creating more YouTubes and more podcasts for us single guys. Okay, I can do that. I can make sure that... We talk about recovery and not necessarily partner recovery. As a matter of fact, tonight we're going to be interviewing Steve Deplin, who explains that most of his professional career was was organized as a career that anybody would have admired and said, I want what he has. He was a university-based researcher. Um, he studied aging higher education, deinstitutionalization, and by all measures, he was on a successful path. But you know how addiction is. As with all addiction, he was hiding a secret. And it is that secret that he had so well until he didn't that turned him into giving his life over to the fellowship, and to helping others get clean and abstain from lots of different things. He is a recovery coach, and he advocates for people with any type of addiction. So we're going to be talking today about, you know, how did he do it, what did he do, and 
what it takes to get honest, to be courageous enough to be honest and, and face, face vulnerability. Because when you face vulnerability, that truly is when your life expands. But it does not feel like that. It doesn't feel that way because you're so scared about being real that you just assume it's going to go bad. And we know just the opposite. It is those men that brave being vulnerable and get into the arena, as Brene Brown would say, that actually create success. And if they fail, they fail by daring greatly. And um, I can tell that Steve's secret to recovery to do with some very, very important recovery principles. He's going to be talking about those tonight. So I'm going to ask you, as you look at your life, what part of you has wanted to do recovery? And what grade would you give yourself on your recovery? Honestly, you know, I do meet so many people who... They're working a good program, but there's, uh, there's a lot of improvement that they could make. And the truth of the matter is that a lot of times they're not, they're not honest about that. They're not honest that, you know, they're still looking at provocative images. They fool themselves into thinking that that's okay, that that's not going to hurt anything. And what we know to be true is that that lights up the brain exactly like pornography, gaming, gambling. But they fooled themselves into believing that they're in middle circle behavior instead of inner circle behavior. And that's the lie they tell themselves. And they'll give themselves a B plus on their recovery when really... They're spending three, four, five episodes a day while they get bored, while they're in the bathroom, while they're waiting on their wives or their friends to come out of the store, getting tiny hits that absolutely add up. And you know, if that happens, then they are on the road to recover. <laughs> they're on the road to relapse. They'll start slipping all around. That is a slip. And then they'll wonder why they went down that rabbit hole again. So what can we do to get people to be honest? I certainly do a couple of different things. I don't let them be asked. Me, my groups, their wife, I call them on things. And I know I can seem harsh, but it's because I want to protect their recovery. I really, really do. And what I know more than anything is that if he or she does not recover in a way 
that maintains their integrity, they'll eventually get complacent and get hijacked again. And that just is not what we want to see happen. We want people to do it right. We want people to have success. I mean, that's what Steve's all about. He's even developed this toolbox. It's kind of like a PCI. Uh, It's his own creation, and he realized how tools and outcomes and needs have to intersect. So he's going to be talking about that too. I, um, he gave that to me. I can't wait to use it with my clients. And you know what? He categorized his tools into that are relational in nature, relational to other people and relational to the self. Um, and he's going to talk about his need to reflect and write and talk and listen and all those incredible out-of-circle behaviors. And then, of course, reading. So it's like he's back in school, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And he's actually able to track how he's doing. And, you know, you all know this, that the number one way to accomplish a goal, no matter what you want, to accomplish that goal, you need to document it. You need to chart how you're doing. When people want to lose weight, if they will just write down what they're eating, they are 85% more likely to have success. And, of course, we ask them to be honest. We ask them to be honest so that they can see what they're doing. And, gosh, when people are honest, that, that is the road to recovery, is it not? Okay. And I've got quite a few people right now on my caseload that they are doing things their way, but they're being honest about it. It's not even things that I would suggest that they do. I got alcohol abusers who want to drink, and they are documenting what they're drinking. They're telling their loved ones that they're drinking. They're carrying around the breathalyzer so that they can at any point prove whether they're intoxicated or not. And, and when they do feel like they're much more likely to meet their own needs and to have people trust them. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, They may be on the road to uh, relapse, but at least they're not hiding the secret. Now, I have other people that are in a heightened state of denial. They are lying to themselves and they don't even know it. And, you know, when that happens, that can be so tough because breaking that denial is rough. And that's what we deal with in this business. We deal with breaking the denial. Um, First recovery task, right? Absolutely. 
So I'm going to ask you, is there anything that you're in denial about? Are there any small behaviors that you are not advertising, but clearly you know they may be slippery slope behaviors? And that's one of the reasons you're not advertising it. You don't want people to bitch and moan, put you down, and tell you that you're heading down the wrong path. So you prefer just not to say anything. Yeah, that's what addiction can look like. It is hard. I know it is incredibly hard. To when you're in recovery, it's like there's lots of people in your business. Your loved ones are in your business. Maybe your coworkers in your business. Your friends are in your business. But the truth of the matter is, if you have to lie to them, then you're in a whole host of trouble. Because I'm telling you, that one lie can oftentimes send you down the rabbit hole. Now, what I know to be true is that most people that start slipping and sliding, they've been lying for a while. They've been lying about lots of little things, right? But I did have a man once who was a cocaine, heroin, and sex addict. And he went down because he got to um, his halfway house And the meeting had already started, and one of the guys said, was anybody late to this meeting tonight? And he didn't say yes. He thought, I was just a minute and a half late, and that's really nobody else's business. And so he held the secret. And when he held the secret, he fell into shame. Now, the shame was not about lying about being late to the meeting. The shame was about holding a secret. And that's why honesty is at the foundation of recovery. Again, we are going to be talking about a lot of different recovery tools tonight. And I love when, when we work with people who have a lot of recovery time. And you and I both know that once you got this thing down, so to speak, you've got several months years, even decades, um, there is this thing inside of you, Patrick Kearns talked about it, that after the great suffering is over and you've gone through transformation, you want to give back. And so tonight we're going to be talking to Steve Devlin, who's a PhD and an EDM, and he's going to explain how his life looks so great, but he was holding a secret. And what he did to get clean, and how he helps other people. So, Steve, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol. How are you? I'm doing great. It's been a great day today. Busy, but really um, full of recovery, actually. (laughs) And that is a great day, is it not? Yes. Oh, my goodness. No question. And, you know, I find recovery in, in every little thing. Oh, give us an example. What are you referencing? Oh, my goodness. Well, um, 
getting out of bed is a great way to start a day. Um, I remember when I was early in withdrawal, and I've told people this, that when you're in withdrawal and you've hit bottom, getting out of bed is the most courageous thing you can do any day. Um, because it's very, very difficult at that point. Um, when you, and for couples and a spouse, a partner who's been betrayed, just getting yourself up and moving. And so that I got up, I did some self-care, I journaled for about half an hour this morning, I did some work work, uh, I got ready for this interview, um, I did some errands for my wife, uh, service to her and for her business. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a good, it's, a, it's a good day. And that's what I try to say every night when I go to bed, that today was a good day. Well, you know, I absolutely agree with you. As a matter of fact, um, they say that three of the most important components to creating happiness is, and this will come as no surprise to you, a recovery coach, that you're staying in the moment, you're enjoying the day, you look at what's working, you have the attitude of gratitude, and you end up reframing and when you reframe, you take an obstacle or a picture and you put a new frame over it and you say, how am I stronger? What have I learned? And how is it working for me? And you have really yeah. turned your life into a transformational story. So tell us a little bit about, oh, how you got into this journey. And by the way, I want to celebrate yesterday because yes. for you, yesterday marks. 4,800 one days at a time sobriety. <laughs> yes. And for people who are trying to divide that by 365 days, that's a little bit over 13 years of recovery. Wow. Um, July would have been, is thir- was this past July was 13 years of recovery. Solid day to day, one day, one days at a time recovery. Um, and it's been amazing. <laughs> Never easy, but it is easier over time, to tell you the truth. The choices that I make have gotten so much easier. Um, you know, it all began in 2007 uh, of July, July 2007, when I hit bottom. Uh, you know, all those walls that I created to keep my addiction away from the rest of my life just came tumbling down. Um, you know, I could no longer keep it separate. And that followed with a few months of suffering, really months, uh, as I went through withdrawal. There was physical pain. There was emotional pain. I've, when I talk to people, I say that I, in those days that I found myself awake at 5, 5 a.m. I didn't wake up. I was found myself awake. And I see other people in recovery nodding their heads going, oh, my goodness, that's exactly right. Suddenly you just feel awake. And there was spiritual pain. I had no hope. Um, I lost 20 pounds in withdrawal. My friends say my skin turned absolutely gray. Um, but I wasn't going outside. Um, and then I got a call from a friend of a friend, a friend of a friend in 12 steps. And he called me every day and he listened. Um, and one of the most profound things he told me, and it's why I tell everyone as well, is that we're just a link in the chain. There's other people that precede us and there's people who will follow us. And we have an important job to do as part of that chain. You know, we get a gift of recovery from other people. We have a responsibility to hand that gift to the next person or to people. Um, and so I got invited to my first 12-step meeting. It changed my life. Um, and I began climbing out of my addiction. I learned empathy. I learned to listen. I learned I wasn't alone. I learned there was hope. And it's worth it. I love that you were talking a moment ago about honesty. 
and rigorous honesty is what it's all about. Uh, you know, I've reached a point in my recovery, and actually been a couple of years now, more than a couple of years, that it's almost impossible for me to tell a lie. And I know people are going to nod their heads going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's true. I just can't get the words out. Um, there's a movie about a man, and I don't want to trigger anybody, so I won't say the name of the movie, but he's on trial. And all he has to do is have one more lie. And he pauses, and then he blurts. He's an alcoholic, and a recovering alcoholic at that point. And turns out, and he has to. He tells the truth, and he says it was as if I had run out of my lifetime lifetime limit of lying. I could not tell another lie. Oh my gosh, that's exactly how I feel. That I told so many lies over so long, I used up my lifetime supply. Well, and so yeah, okay, I've so been all, all, um, sober for since um, July 2007. And it sounds like your buddy helps you get back on, well, helps you get on track and look at those issues. Tell us what that transformational time was like for you. You didn't just become a recovery coach. You had to earn it. I had to earn it, yeah. Um, well, I, I had a very good friend who lived, I'm outside of Philadelphia, um, who lives around here. And um, she got me involved in my local 12-step fellowship. Um, not only going to meetings, which I was doing six times a day, six times a week, not six times a day, I wish, uh, six times a week, six meetings a week I was going to. And she saw something in me, which I still couldn't, I couldn't see in myself. And she said, you know, there's this thing out there they're starting called Certified Recovery Coach. And I think you should look into it. Now, as you mentioned, I've got undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in psychology. Um, of course, none of those prepared me for being an addict or to see that I was an addict or to find my way out of addiction. Um, what helped was making the commitment to recovery and making the commitment to service to other people. Boy, did that make a difference for me. And so she said to me, there's this thing that Pennsylvania is offering called a certified recovery coach. You know, it's a credential, people who have lived experience in recovery addiction um, we have a unique perspective. We're not a sponsor. We're not a therapist. We're not a case manager. We're a role model, a mentor, an advocate, a motivator. Um, and it took training. You just can't say, oh, I'm going to do this. Um, I had to go to 54 hours of training over a month or so um, in all areas, including ethics. Every two years, I had to take 30 more classes that are relevant to recovery, including ethics and confidentiality. Um, and so I had to go back to school. Even after you know, I've been to school for a long time, I had to go back and learn about what is recovery and what does that mean and how do you advocate for people? How do you get people to advocate for themselves? Um, and that is how I get into this. And so I've got a, a practice outside Philadelphia that I meet with people, sometimes for long periods of time, sometimes for short periods of time. And I listen to them, and um, we work together to find a, help them find a way to manage their lives again, to rebuild their lives, actually. So it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's changed my life. Yeah, it sounds like it's an incredible adjunct to having a mentor, having a sponsor, having a therapist. Um, yep. And, and obviously, coaching can take you to the next level. But it sounds like your recovery coaching 
keeps you very, very focused on how to maintain good recovery. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It. I always tell. <laughs> I only work with men, um, for my own reasons. Um, and what I always tell them is, I may get more out of this than you will. And they look at me like, that sounds really selfish. Like, no. The reality is that as a recovering person, I need to be reminded of where I came from with an eye of where I'm going to. But I can't get lazy about my recovery. I can't think, oh, I'm all better now, and you know, I don't need this stuff anymore, and I can go off on my own. The surest route to relapse um, and sliding or slipping um, it's that just bad. So they, these men who I work with remind me of how far I have come. And it gives me strength to listen to them and to see the changes. When I see someone change, and you may run into this as well, that when you see someone change who suddenly gets that light bulb above their head, when they start to realize, I'm thinking in a different way, or when they get the, where did that word come from? My wife always says that to me, like, you're not the, we've been married 40 years. And she will say, what did you say? And I said, blah, 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 whatever I just said. And she said, where did that come from? And I said, I have no idea. But it's recovery. And so I see guys yeah. who get that moment in themselves. They go, oh, I get it. It's like, that's what it's all about for me. That's the joy of doing this work. Okay, so you got those hours in, and then you took a certification test, or you had to yep. work with a supervisor. How, how does recovery coaching work? Yeah, I don't have a supervisor. Um, if uh, There are some coaching um, certifications where you have to have a supervisor. Um, you know, I don't have that. Um, but I do depend on other coaches in this area um, to talk to and to get a sense of what's going on. And I do turn to them, not in, not in a formal sense of a, um, of a supervisor, but more informal. Because I know, again, I can't do this alone. There are times that there are stories that I hear that are very difficult to deal with. And so I need my own person, like a supervisor, um, but a friend to say, okay, what should I do next? What should I do with this issue? Um, and so that helps a lot. And yes, there was, a, there was the 54 hours of training I had to go through. And then there was also um, an exam at the end, um, which I did, <laughs> I did okay, I guess. <laughs> I'm a little competitive, um, which is my one of character defects. Um, and then, but I had to take this training all the time to stay up to speed on what's going on in the field, what's the newest research, what's the newest methodologies. Um, so I can't get lazy about it. I have to be always thinking and working on this. Uh, this is hard work, and it takes real training to know what the heck you're doing and commitment. Well, and, and you have this toolbox that has really worked for you and your clients. And, and would you tell our listening audience what uh, that toolbox is comprised of and, and why you think it's so important to good recovery work? Yeah, a, a toolbox is essential. Um, for all the 
the people out there who work, um, you know, in their garage with their tools. So like the big, you know, hammers, screwdrivers, whatever. For me, it's a hammer. There's a feel in your hand of a hammer that just fits right in your hand. It's got all that sweat and grease and grime and some paint stains from over the years, but it's that tool, that hammer that just feels right in your hand. And that's what I imagine when I develop my toolbox. And in about two years into recovery, I made a list of all that my sponsor recommended. I said, list out all the things you're doing to stay sober. And so I did the typical stuff, prayer, meditation, journaling, meetings, listening to others, reading, calling, reading 12-step books, calling others, positive self-talk, the typical stuff. And then he pushed me. He said, there's more than you, that you do every day. What are those things? And what needs are those meeting for you? And so I thought of it as a grid that along one column are all the things I'm doing. Again, prayer, meditation, 12-step meetings, journaling. And I also started to list stepping outside for a cup of coffee every morning, listening to nature, having a cup of tea to, to relax, cleaning, doing laundry, cooking, baking. I learned to bake bread in recovery. We haven't bought bread in 13 years. Um, reading, dancing around the kitchen. Yes, I do that. Uh, singing when I break bread. Yes, I do that too. Um, I ended up with 22 activities down a column. Then across the top, I listed all the needs I would have, connecting with people outside of myself, connecting with myself, self-care, rigorous honesty, or being honest, as you had mentioned before, being in the present, finding a safe place, and then I, so you have this grid going, things along the top, things along the side, and then I put X's where they met. So when I need to connect outside of myself, I can go to a meeting or I can pray. Self-care, doing my laundry. Emptying the dishwasher is self-care. For me, shaving is self-care. Getting out of bed is self-care. Going for a walk. When I need to be honest with myself, put an X in journaling. That's what I do. When I need to be present, I listen to music. Or I go outside, close my eyes, and I listen to the wind. So there's these things I'm doing and these needs I have, and they intersect. And what's happened now is that every day, which is how we start our conversation tonight, I'm doing these things, and they're meeting a need before I have the actual need. So when I journal, I just journal a lot of practice every day. And today I finished my 24th volume of my journal. Um, which I started on day two of my recovery. And it meets a need before I even knew it that I had to be honest with myself because I see the words, what I'm feeling on paper there in front of me. So it's a grid, and you fill in the grid. It's really easy, um, but it helps me. And I hand it out to people all the time so they can see it. Yeah, that's um, amazing, and what I know to be true is that, as I was indicating before you came on, when you write things down, you're much more likely to make oh. them happen or to reflect on them in a way that really meets an inner sense. Um, you know, yeah. we are just so busy, and, and people in recovery are going through so much, especially new recovery. You know, they always say they're white-knuckling it because it just can feel very overwhelming. So you have put things in your toolbox that actually 
slow the person down and encourages them to find their own inner thoughts, feelings, and wisdom, right? Yes, yes. And you, you don't realize all the things that you do every day that are actually helping your recovery, that there is recovery all around us all the time. There's service we can do for other people. There's ways of helping ourselves. Like I said, shaving is a way of self-care. Doing laundry is a way of showing your partner or yourself that you can take care of yourself, that you have responsibilities. Of course, baking, baking bread is, for me, fills in all the boxes. Yeah, and where did you get your love for cooking like that? I have to say my wife. Um, I grew up in a very uh, in an Irish German house where the cooking wasn't really great, except my mother's baking was pretty good. Um, but my wife really taught me how to cook, um, and I just decided to bake bread. And she and no one in my family had ever made bread before. But I thought, you know what? What's the worst that can happen? I throw it away, and the first loaf I had to throw away, but the second loaf was much better. And now I've got a whole repertoire of things. It's actually easier than people think. People get challenged by baking bread, like challenged by recovery. Yeah, it, you got to have a recipe, but you can do it. Well, and I can hear in your voice how um, it it must really stir up the creativity because uh, oh yeah, you get jazzed just talking about it. Oh yeah, I'm and I'm always shocked that it works. I have to tell you, I've been doing this as I said for 13 years. And I always get excited when the bread the bread actually rises in the in the bowl. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. it worked again. Oh boy! <laughs> so my wife says it's worked every every week for all these years. Why are you surprised? Because I get joy out of it. Well, okay. Now I've got some other questions for you because obviously you um, have really made it your mission to look at your emotional, physical, and spiritual foundations and. And your work has been influenced by one of my favorites, Viktor Frankl. So mm. tell our listening audience, who was he, and how did he influence your sense of recovery? Sure. Um, he was an Austrian psychologist, neurologist, and a Holocaust survivor. Um, and a few months into my own recovery, a friend who was a recovering alcoholic, or still is a recovering alcoholic, sent me a book uh, called A Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and it's those first hundred pages that changed my whole perspective on what I was going through. You know, he wrote about in those hundred pages. The second hundred pages is a theory of psychology. You don't need to read that. Read the first hundred pages only. Um, but he talked about what it was like in his own journey to find meaning in his life when he had the horror of losing everything right to his partner who was taken to another camp and his clothing and his possessions all were stripped from him when he entered Auschwitz and he had to find meaning in his life he could decide he could not just surrender to the inevitability that he saw of of life ending he had to find some meaning and what he did was he found meaning in every moment that for him, life never ceased to have meaning. Even suffering had meaning. And when I thought about that, I thought about you know that it, my own first couple of months 
and when my sponsor and I met. And I said, why me? Why does this have to happen to me? And he said to, back to me, he said, why not you? Would you wish this on anybody mm-hmm. else? And I thought, <laughs> oh, my goodness, my suffering. Now, nothing compared to what Victor Frankl went through. Absolutely nothing. I won't even, I can't even compare it. But it was my own suffering in my own way. And I realized I would not wish this on anyone else. And here was an opportunity for me to grow. Now, I was reminded as I was thinking about tonight, my son, when he was about 12 or 13 and started to grow, that he would complain at night his legs were hurting. Oh, his legs were hurting. And we tried massage. We tried you know, putting hot compresses on them. Finally, we took them to the doctors. He said, oh, we're really worried. His legs are hurting him all the time. Wake up crying in the middle of the night. The doctor said, this is normal. This is part of growth. His leg, the, the bone plates in his legs, his, the, the femur was stretching. His suffering was an opportunity for him to grow. I was like, oh, <laughs> recovery is an opportunity to grow. Suffering has some meaning. If we, and Victor Frankl wrote that if we just if suffering has no meaning, then that's that's true agony. But when we find that it has meaning in our lives, it's, we're suffering because something is telling us to move forward. The clearest example also I have is when we all learned the times tables. You know, we had to learn you know how to multiply numbers. It wasn't easy. We had to suffer through math class in the fourth grade or whatever. Same thing here. People are, if you're in well, pain, yeah. it has it's an opportunity for you to grow. Okay, and that's And the other thing Victor Frankl talked it. about was choice, that we all have a choice. Okay. That, you know, you can take away everything from us, but as he said, the last human freedom is the freedom to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances, to find one's own way. So people can do things out there that we don't like. It's up to me to decide what is my attitude going to be. And I think for me, the intersection of those is where you find hope. My life has meaning. I have the choice, and that's hope. And that's what really work as a recovery um, professional is all about, helping people find that hope again. Well, absolutely. And again, that's reframing. And whenever you look at something difficult or hard and you ask, what does it have to teach me? What can I learn from it? It takes you out of that victim role and it puts you right into that empowerment role. And and really, that is what a coach does. I mean, they empower their clients to find their own sense of meaning, just like Victor Frankl. Yeah. So I got another question for you because clearly um, there have been many people that have um, influenced your work. And mm-hmm. obviously, can people get a hold of you and hire you to do recovery coaching with them? Absolutely. Absolutely. So how do they do that? Um, and I can give you my email. And you already have that, so if people didn't get it, they can get it from you somehow. Um, but my email is Steve D PhD at gmail.com. That's Steve, the letter D, the letters PhD, like in the degree, at Gmail. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me. 
and um, I will get back to people as soon as I can. So well, and that I prefer that is, over give out my phone number. Yeah, and you said don't give out the phone number, so I'm not going to give that out. But I, Thank I just you. That's wonder, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, because people want to be motivated, and you know, I'm a coach too. I'm a therapist and a coach, and and yeah. I got into this business of coaching because I wanted to help people self-actualize. And then yeah. when I went to um, sex addiction training through ITAP and became a CSAT, um, the third module in our training that Patrick Carnes was teaching was coaching. And he was saying yeah. things like, an addict in good recovery has to leave a legacy. That's important. Yeah. Teach them how to leave a legacy. You know, I mean, he wanted right. he wanted covering addicts to see themselves as more than their addiction he wanted them to give back and know that they had left an imprint in the, on this world. Um, yes. You know, yeah. I just think that's Did you really see him amazing. last year at the uh, at the SASH conference? Uh, of course, I did with Barbara Steffens, who I'm an AppSats person. So it was Patrick Carnes being a yes. team, and then Barbara Steffens. Yeah. Yes. Well, I was the, I was so the, uh, the the chair of the conference last year, so for me, seeing him was just a thrill. Yeah, and I saw he you speak is, too. So, yes, yeah, did. Yes, I, I did. I think I was speak, I was speaking on couples, wasn't I? <laughs> yes, you were, and on betrayal. Yes. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, and I'm going to be doing an ICAP thing um, on the 18th, and and going to be doing that virtually, and helping couples heal, and teaching clinicians how to do that. Okay. You know, it's one thing to deal with personal recovery and I'm a big believer and you've got to get that down and then once you get it down if you're in a relationship it's so important to work on that that relational recovery because there's a lot oh. of damage that's been caused by sex addiction wouldn't you agree oh yeah oh absolutely mm-hmm. no question it's it's a trauma to um both partners and in different ways it's trauma I could theoretically argue it's the same. It's a it's a trauma to meaning of life and a trauma to well being. But the partner has a, a different kind of trauma than the recovering person, I, the addict. Sorry, but they're both recovering. But oh yeah, no question. Yeah, and I hope that the, I hope that you don't mind. But one of the things that in in getting in booking you for tonight's show. Um, obviously, you said two things to me that said you were in good recovery. You said, you know what, I don't typically work late nights, and uh, let me check with my wife and, and make sure that's going to work, right? And I said, that's a man. <laughs> you caught me, yes. Who, I love that. And then you did it again. Thank you. When, yeah, when you, you said, I'm going to send you my bio later on, but I'm first going to have my wife take a look at it. And I thought you two are a team. You could feel it, smell it, taste it. Yeah. So, and you said 40 years? 40 years. We met actually 44 years ago this September, the first day of classes in college. So we married 40 years. We almost didn't make it. I'll tell people that this was an amazing test. Um, And I give her so much credit. Um, but, but she put up some really strict conditions and boundaries, a word we had never thought of, 
um, for the recovery of our marriage. She had a whole list of things that, and I mean things around the house, she had a list of 100 things that I needed to do, but also marriage therapy, group therapy, individual therapy, 12-step meetings, working with a sponsor. Um, she had to see that I was willing to fight for our marriage and our recovery. She was not going to give me cheap, I'll call it, not judging, cheap forgiveness. I had to really work on her trust. And that continues today, not to the same degree. You know, one of my little things I did in recovery was to go and disappear for a while and not tell her where I was. A lot of addicts do that. Now, when I'm at a meeting, a 12-step meeting, and I'm coming home, I call, even now, I call her and say, I'm leaving the meeting now so she knows when to expect me. Or I'm stuck in traffic. So I know being absent is a trigger for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does get easier, but I'm still very, very, very aware of what I need to do. And now it's like small things like bringing her a cup of tea. She was on Zoom calls all day today for her business. Um, and so I brought her tea and some crackers at one point. Just and because I could and should. Impressive. I mean, it, you know, obviously you guys have great give and take, but I love the fact that, you know, what is it, 4,000 days later? What is it? What's your, what's your number? 4,801. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you are still cognizant of what you can do to make her feel safe. And, you know, perhaps... Yeah. She doesn't need that anymore, and perhaps she does. But the bottom line is if you do it, it instills a safety that she forgets that she needs because she already has it, and I love that. Exactly, and it's because I want to now, not because I have to, but it's because I want to. Yeah. And that's a sea change for me. Okay, and you know that that's a huge change for you, and you, um, you know, how would you grade yourself? What grade would you give yourself in in knowing how to do that regularly? Oh Lord, you're talking to a a, a, a competitive person. Um. <laughs> good, good. Jeez, I I don't know. Um, I would say that in my in my addiction at Toward the end, especially, I was failing every day, every every way, um, in all areas of my life. I, it was it was a failure. Um, I think I pulled myself up maybe to a solid B most of the time. I, I'm I'm loath to give myself an A. That sounds too egotistical, but um, I, I, a solid foundation is what I'm looking for, and I'm I'm happy with a B. That's gives me a little room to, to improve, but, you know, it's, it's within grasp. Well, can I ask you something, since you obviously have a lot of recovery, and you just showed me humility, that, you know, you didn't give yourself an A+, plus, and, you know, you said, I like to be a B, because it gives me this, something to work towards and work on. That, that old saying, you know, for addicts, that um, the three things you need, an addict needs to carry with him is openness, brokenness, and humility. There's a little Mm -hmm. part of me, I'm not an addict, 
feel like once you're in good recovery, the humility should always be there. I love that. The openness should always be there. I love vulnerability. But the brokenness, I've never quite understood that. Do you agree that if you, if you have that sense of brokenness, you're probably on the right track? Yes. Um, okay. But it doesn't mean that it's still broken. It means that, you know, it's – I know it's become a trite to say this, but, you know, the, the, what, the broken bone comes back stronger or something like that is the expression. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a reminder of, you know, what you went through that I always had the potential to slide back and become completely broken again, and to lose all that I have gained. That exists, I think, for every person. And if you say, oh, I'll never do this again, well, you know, I could tell you that um, I see that a lot in my work. Um, and you can make all the promises you want, but you have to be able to work for them. And you have to work on that healing. So maybe I'm not broken, but I think I like the word healing instead. So I'm broken, I'm healing, and I'm humble. Um, That there's always a way to heal some more. I'm not completely healed, but I'm healing. You know, I had a very wise friend who said that for him going to 12-step meetings is his chemo for for his cancer of of addiction. And that the moment he stops going, it's going to come back. So he needs to go to meetings in order to get that. I need to, for me personally, I need to do service. I need to be honest. I need to go to meetings. I need to reach out. I need to do things like tonight. This is part of my healing, being able to talk to you and to everyone who's listening uh, about my story. This helps me heal. Because oh, yeah. it reminds well, me of how far a- I have come. Well, I, and I know that, you know, you, you mentioned Sash and you mentioned uh, the fact that you had helped to organize that conference. You were the chair last year? Yes, for three years now. Well, tell our listening audience what Sash is. Some people may not know. Uh, S-A-S-H. It stands for the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health. Sexual Health. Excuse me. You know, we're a nonprofit dedicated to promoting um, a, an integrative approach to research, education, intervention, which means you know people in the healthcare field, coaches, you know therapists, uh, psychiatrists, you know any nurses at uh, healthcare who wants to come and talk and has or as well as advocates, partners, people in recovery. It's a place where you can have an open and informed discussion without fear of stigma or of shame. And in early 2017, I had this feeling I wanted to do more. I was doing some stuff here in this Philadelphia region, but I wanted to do more nationally. And a few months later, I had done, I got a phone call to join the board. And my first response, I got to tell you, was I was to laugh and go, really, me? And then I realized, Mm -hmm. okay, my higher power is listening. And so I can be careful what I wish for, but here I got it. And so the past three years, I've been um, the chair of the national conference. And for me, it's a wonderful place to talk about the challenges of addiction and recovery 
and what it's like for partners, what it's like for families, what it's like for the, re- the recovering person. Um, and we cover a, a stretching far and wide. Um, and this year we're going to have our conference virtually. It's going to be October 15th through 18th. We're going to have 34 speakers, including coaches and therapists and researchers. We're going to have Elizabeth Smart, who everyone, I think, will know the name. Um, she was kidnapped as a young child and then found. She's our keynote. Um, for people who are in your audience, perhaps, we're going to have four free sessions on Friday and Saturday night for what we call our sexual health, aware- sexual health awareness um, event. Um, and we talk about pornography, we talk about when sex becomes problematic, forgiveness after betrayal, and then sex after divorce is going to be one of the uh, topics for, the, for free for people throughout the world and throughout the community or throughout the country. Um, you can always check out our website at sash.net. Yes, exactly. What's that? So say, that, say that one more time. Sash.net, S-A-S-H.net. They just go to the webpage, and you'll find the information there. Look for conferences. Okay. And, and those are considered community services, and you always, every year, have a, a conference, and there's a community component because that's what SASH does. They really believe in giving right. back to the community. And, um, you know, I can hear the pride in your voice about SASH, too. Now I know, cooking <laughs> and SASH. Right? <laughs> I didn't even mention my carpentry. <laughs> All right. Now, just as we kind of wrap up, there are two more questions I have about you personally. And, and that is, you know, obviously you and your wife have been married a long time and you've worked really hard at that relationship. What do you think was the turning point in your oh. relationship? Well, I think the one was the uh, the boundaries, which I talked about. Uh, my wife, you know, she did move out for a while during my withdrawal, and she was very smart to do that because it wasn't pretty. And But when she came back, she said, here are all the conditions. And there was things to do around the house and all the therapies and 12 steps. But there was a moment in our therapy, and we had a very, very good therapist here in Philadelphia. We did an empathy exercise, and she and I still talk about it all these years later. We still, and sometimes we use it still, that um, she had to describe the day she found out about my, my addiction. And I had to describe mm-hmm. the day I told her. And then we had to trade places. And I had to, and using her words and in a sense her voice, describe it back. And then she had to describe what I went through back to me using my own words. And mm-hmm. we, I got to about halfway through her story and telling it back to her after she had said it to me, and I started to cry. And she got through my story and started to cry. And that was the turning point. Because before we had been in our and corners, you know I, uh-huh. and here we were and you know, learning. Well, and learning empathy, both of you. Oh. And, you know, that's my subject. I love empathy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's the key. Yes, it is. Well, yeah. Steve Devlin, I so thank you for being on the show. And, you know, you've done a great job, and it shows. And, 
and, you know, you're a PhD. Um, are you a minister too? No, no. Uh, my master's is in counseling psych. Got it. I didn't know what EDM meant, so I thought that was Yeah, master's in education. Got yeah. it. And but I'll tell you, you it's the recovery said, that's given me the best education. Well, I know you're an inspiration to others, and that inspires others to know that, that their recovery can do the same. So thank you thank so you. much tonight, and I look forward to – I'm not going to be doing the virtual I – co, I come every other year, so I will talk with you next year. You can do it right from your office or your living room. I know, but I'm sign up. I'm certified. I'm certified in so many things. I go broke. You've got to understand. <laughs> that's okay, that's fair. Gotta be All right, I let you off the hook this year. <laughs> but next you, year, I want to see you in Seattle. I can't wait, and I was hoping I'd be. Wasn't it in Portland this year? Allegedly, originally. Uh, it was supposed to be in Seattle this year, but yeah, out there. And guess okay, what? Okay, I'll, well, I'll, I'll see you. All right. And, God bless and maybe you. Maybe I'll get to meet your wife. Will I get to meet your wife? Yes, that'll be great. Oh, yeah, she's planning to be there. Okay, tell her Carol the coach. Can't wait to meet her. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Big fan. All right. Talk to you later. Have Bye, Carol. One. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Have a good one. All right, so again, I'm going to give you his, this man, um, I, I think anybody would want to work with him, and I am looking for it right now. I'm telling you, Steve Devlin, and that is Steve, D-P-H-D, at gmail.com. All right, guys, I will see you next week for more inspiration, and um, please make it a good one. Don't let COVID get you down. We'll see you soon. And remember, there will only be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll talk soon.